0: church, as you can tell by our, uh, the amount of announcements, is very full. Um, last week we had our, our first, uh, I guess first annual Pumpkin Palooza. Who went to the Pumpkin Palooza? Raise your hands. Yes. It was a great time. Hey, for those of you, I know there are some people who showed up at, at 8 o'clock in the morning and was here till 8 o'clock at night to get that ready. So volunteers, if you were a volunteer, would you stand up? I just want to thank you for such a great time. None of you. Oh, yeah, we got two. There we are. Yes thank you guys it was a great time to be together and i know you put in a lot of effort so thank you so much for that and then this weekend we had our men's conference the landmines guys raise your hands if you're at the men's conference this weekend raise your hands what that is awesome yes we had a great time fellowshipping together and it's just good to do life together here in a local church and then tonight we got our Lord's supper service so we have your social calendar planned out for you no problem at all um this morning we're jumping back into Uh, The third division of our study of the book of Revelation, if you're new, we've been going through the book of Revelation this year, and because it's such a large book, we we divided it into three distinct divisions, Uh, there was chapters 1 through 8 was the first division, we did that from February to May, and then the second division was chapters 8 through 15, we did that in August and September. And then this third and final division is chapters 15 to 22, the end of the book. And we're going to be doing that all of this month, and it's going to take us through to the end of the year. Now, when we first started this study, I presented to you this slide. Now, I, I realize there are many of you who are note takers, and some of you are brand new. Don't, don't feverishly try to copy this down. I'm going to post the slides that there are the graphics that I show you this morning on Realm, so you can just, just take it in, because I know a lot of people complain that I go too fast through the slides. Um, so don't copy this down. We'll have it on Realm. But I created this outline, if you would, kind of a working outline of the book of Revelation to kind of give us a a 10,000-foot view of what can be a very complex book. And and no doubt about it, Revelation is a complex book, but there are some distinct features about it. And so we said in the book of Revelation, there are five um, sections to the book. Number one, and they were kind of easily titled, number one, it was the Lord, the church, Uh, section three was the lion and the lamb, section four was the war, and then section five is the end. Now, sections one through three right here, that was pretty easy enough to understand. Section one, entitled the Lord, was basically Revelation chapter one. And in that chapter, you recall, we see the vision, uh, or John sees a vision of the the risen, magnified, triumphant Jesus Christ. Especially verses 12 through 20 where we are just introduced to all the names of who he is. And it's an amazing vision, right? So that's the first section. The second section, the church, was covering chapters 2 to 3. And that's where we looked at uh, God's seven messages to the seven churches. And remember that number seven being so significant, and, and really what it was, was this is, although he was talking to historical churches, you remember Sardis and uh, uh, Ephesus and all that, it was really a message to the church, the church of all times, all places, including us. And in those messages, every single message, there was a repeated theme. Number one, there was a, a, something that anchored them, and the anchor was back into the Lord, There was something about chapter 1 that was very applicable to that church in chapters 2 through 3. So it anchored them in the Lord. It also alerted them to some problems within their church. And then assured them of God's faithfulness that would take them through this huge section called the war. So every church had these three themes, and the message would anchor them in the hope of the gospel, the hope of Christ, would alert them to a problem, and assure them of Christ's faithfulness to them, right? And that would carry them through this section here. The third section, the lion and the lamb, that was chapters 4 through 5, and I said that was the the power source of the universe, where, where the curtain of reality gets pulled back and we see the very throne room of God, we see God interacting, and it's really from chapters 4 and 5 and the vision of the throne room of God that everything else in the rest of the book, from chapters 6 through 22, really spins out of that. So profound was the vision in chapters 4 and 5 that it actually laid the foundation and gave the confidence and hope that all these things they could endure through this time period because of this vision now the majority of our time and it's, uh, oh, excuse me and today we are picking up back into this fourth section called the war we've spent the most amount of time in that because there's a lot of this basically this is a, this is the section where i said things just really get crazy right the the, the various interpretive schemes come to, to come to fruition now We'll spend uh, another couple more weeks in it. Like I said, we'll we spend a total of eight weeks in this section. And then we're going to end with section five, the end, probably at the very end of this month, maybe the beginning of next month. Now, this is where we've come so far. What I want to do now is expand with this next slide, expand this section and give you another kind of 10,000-foot view of this section, the longest section of the book, the section we call the war because it's so applicable to us. So we're looking at this slide here. It's the, I've taken that section four and now I've expanded it. And what you see in the book of Revelation in these particular chapters is that rather than um, it being kind of a linear book, and for some of you, this is review, but for some of you, this is brand new. I was saying it's in other words, it's not seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath. So 21 different kinds of judgments and actions of God rather in keeping with the nature of this book we talked about interpretation uh we talked about the genre of the book being apocalyptic and prophecy the nature of that particular genre was that it was recursive in keeping with the oriental frame of mind that this was written as opposed to linear in other words it just doesn't run from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 22 it runs from chapter 6 to chapter 8 And then chapter 8 to chapter 11, reviewing some of what we looked at in chapter 6 and chapter 8. Chapter 15 and chapter 16, reviewing again what we looked at at chapters, you get the point. And so to illustrate that, I have these kind of arrows showing the recursive nature of these chapters. And for some people, that's very helpful to read the book of Revelation. Because there's many things you read in this section that happen in this section and happen in this section and when you realize, oh, it's because he's revisiting the same kind of things, that's why they're repeating, but before, many people thought it was just linear, and it got to be kind of confusing. I mean, how many times did the world end anyway in this book, right? That kind of thing. Now, in the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, there were two what we called interludes, a little like a, like if you're watching a, a I, I just got a chance to watch a great uh, show that some of our students were in over at Mission Viejo High School. Caleb Smith, are you here? Uh, He's sleeping because they had a cast party. His character would occasionally break from the scene and walk over and talk to the audience, right? This is kind of an aside. Gives us information that if we are just watching the play, we wouldn't normally have. Well, that's the role of these kind of interludes here in chapter 7 and chapter 10 through chapter 11. Each of those interludes showed us the same kind of thing. In chapter 7, God was sealing his people in the midst of... Of the craziness of the seals and the trumpets and all that God wanted his people to know I know who you are I got a lot of you but I know every single one of you and he does that by this unusual number 144,000 how do we get there well 12 people from the 12 tribes of Israel representing the people of God in the Old Testament the 12 apostles representing the people of God in the New Testament. So he knew all his people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the number 1,000 meant a lot. Nobody counted that, but it was a specific number. So 12 and 12 times a 1,000 was 144,000. God was saying, I have a lot of people, and I know every single one of them. And he sealed them. And as we're going into the trumpets and going through all of this, God says, I want my people to know I know you, and I've got my seal on you. The second interlude that it kind of looks like it happens here, but it actually fits right here, chapter 10 through eleven thirteen. 13, it's the same message, God's people. They are protected, you probably can't see those words there, protected. They're persecuted though, but they're still proclaiming the gospel in the midst of all this craziness in this kind of reality we're living in. And then there's a, another kind of like, oh, so we're talking about the war, Let's talk about the particular enemies that we face, and that's what the role of chapters 12 through 15. All of a sudden, now, John introduces us to the powers behind all the persecution, and the distress, and the the physical reality, the world we see, what's happening behind that? And chapter 12 introduces us to the dragon. And we we read this cosmic battle that the dragon is defeated, but then in chapter 13, we realize, we learn about these two beasts, that one of them is called the false prophet. And we realize, oh, all this book of Revelation—the the enemy, Satan—can only mimic God; he can copy God down to the fact that he has an unholy Trinity: the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, to copy the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we're introduced to those characters here. And I say, well, what's this Babylon, the prostitute? Well, it's the people of that false holy, un- that unholy Trinity. Just as we have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and together they are creating the people of God, and the metaphor used for the people of God is the bride of Christ in purity and beauty, the enemy, the world, has its people too, embracing impurity and lust, and that is the great prostitute Babylon. And so now we get to chapters 15 and 16, the final, kind of the bowls of God's wrath. That's our review. Thursday morning, I was walking over very early in the morning to the preschool that my wife teaches at. She knows that Thursdays are are my day I give to to study and to write for Sunday sermon. And so as soon as I walk into the office, she sees me. She sees the look on my face apparently. She goes, oh, how's it going? Now I look at my wife and I say, well, it's Revelation 15 and 16, the seven bowls of God's wrath. So, yeah, that's really going to encourage our people, you know sometimes as a preacher when i study god's word god's word just and sometimes you have this experience when you're just studying yourself it like it just unfolds right and the, the truths. and for me a sermon just almost beautifully tumbles out of it it's kind of like a sculptor that looks at granite and sees david or an artist looks at a canvas and sees the mona lisa this is not one of those sermons okay <laughs> there's nothing nothing came out um there, the, the challenge I realized as I was preparing, and it's a big challenge for all of us in our study of the Bible generally, and the book of Revelation particularly, is that as human beings, we tend to tune out things that seem repetitive, don't we, right? We call it white noise. I mean, and if you've been in this study of Revelation with us for, for this whole year, I mean, how much end-of-the-world kind of language can you process, can you take in, can, can you hear before it all just sounds and seems the same, right? So, because in one sense, we have already read and studied this material, right? In one sense, and as I said, the recursive nature of this book of Revelation. As we study Revelation chapter 20, I'm going to show you how a lot of the things we're reading in Revelation 20, we've actually already seen in Revelation 16 and Revelation 11. Yet, they're not all identical. These three recursive loops are pointing to the same realities But it would be a a mistake to say they're identically the same or else why does jesus himself make a distinction between seven seals seven trumpets and seven bowls so while there are similarities there are distinctions and the challenge we have before us is on the one hand not to be too bored and make assumptions because of the similarities or on the other hand to make too much of the differences and not see the connective tissue and then start spinning out all kinds of new events and timelines and schema in the book of Revelation. And that's the challenge we have at looking at this. So what I'm going to do for us this morning is I'm going to walk us through. So if you have a Bible, go to Revelation chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 5. If you're using our pew Bible, I think that's on page uh, 973. So page 973, if you're using our pew Bible, and we're going to look at Revelation 15. What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk us through the seven bowls, but more to the point, I'm going to then tease out what I think are three significant surprises that we actually see, uh, encounter as we read God's seven bowls of wrath. So that's how we're going to move forward this morning. Let me pick it up, Revelation chapter 15. We're going to pick it up in verse 5 because we concluded verses 1 through 5 when David Erickson preached on this several months ago. Revelation chapter 5, excuse me, 15, verse 5, and I'll read up to 16.1. John writes this, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, "'clothed in pure, bright linen, "'with golden sashes around their chests. "'And one of the four living creatures "'gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls "'full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. "'And the sanctuary was filled with smoke "'from the glory of God and from his power, "'and no one could enter the sanctuary "'until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. "'Then I heard a loud voice from the temple "'telling the seven angels, "'Go!' and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, as I begin this morning, as I said, this isn't my most creative sermon here, so if I was better at it, I could smoothly tell you the main point without just coming out and saying, I'm telling you the main point. But here's the central point of this, and the reason I'm being just so blunt with it is because there's a lot going on, and I, want you not, I, I don't want you to miss it. The central point of Revelation fifteen five to the end of 16, and really the seven bowls of God's wrath, is that God will not allow the persecution of his people and the willful rejection of his kingship and all the resulting evil, rebellion, injustice, and wickedness to continue forever. God's not going to let that happen at all. And so what I want to do right now is I'm going to run us through these seven bowls of wrath and we're going to unpack them briefly and then get to the three surprising things we realize from this text. Let's look at them. Bowl number one, starting in verse two. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people. Verse number three, the second angel poured out his bowl, bowl number two, into the sea and it became like the blood of of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea the third angel verse 4 poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became like blood skip down to verse 8 the fourth angel poured out the fourth bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire and they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of god who had power over these plagues they did not repent and give him glory Bowl number five, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Bowl number six, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Skip down to verse number 17. The seventh bowl, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Friends, as you read this, the, the sheer scope of these judgments should strike you as, I mean, obviously cataclysmic and exhaustive. Bowl number one, speaking of this just disease upon humanity. Bowls number three, two, and three, talking of an ecological disaster, bowls number four and five, speaking of a cosmic calamities, and bowl six and seven. It's seemingly as if the earth itself is just splitting apart. Now. If you're new here, you, you want the details, you want the juicy bits, right? You want to know, are the kings from the east, Putin and uh, Xi Jinping, is, is that what's going on here? If you've been here for the study, you know you're going to be disappointed because that's not what we're going to do because, again, I remind you, what is revelation? It is a picture, right? It is a picture. It's not about the particulars. It is a a painting to be impressed by, not necessarily a puzzle to figure out. It is a vision of a horizon, not a weather report. It it, it is a motivational speech, not a technical manual. We are to be impressed by the overall impression of what we are reading. So the question is, what are we looking at? What are we reading? And if you just step back from the desire to know the particulars, the overwhelming sense of what these visions should say is we are reading about some divine, a cataclysmic divine retribution. Where all sources of life that humanity depends upon are removed, where we see and experience inexplicable realities, like how can you on the one hand have the sun so scorching that it burns people, but on the other hand, darkness that plunges us all into a blindness inexplicable realities and creation itself just breaking apart. Now if you've been in this series, you should know you should be thinking right now, you've, you've heard this kind of thing before, you've seen this language before, you should be thinking the plagues upon Egypt. As a matter of fact, did you notice in chapter 15, verse 6, that that imagery is we come right at it and the, out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues. This Exodus motif runs all through the book of Revelation. The the Ezekiel, book of Ezekiel, runs all through the book of Revelation, and it it makes sense why what's happening in these books in Exodus. God's people are being oppressed. They're living under harsh, difficult situations. They are being crushed, and God brings his power in judgment upon the nation that is oppressing them and delivers his people beautifully showing himself to be the sovereign king of all creation and reality. But Ezekiel is also a main theme throughout Revelation, especially in the middle sections we looked at. And why is that? Because what's happening in Ezekiel? It is that God's people are living in exile in a foreign, hostile land where they're constantly tempted to follow after the gods of those nations. And God says, no, one day I'll bring you home. And so it's no wonder why this kind of language from Exodus and Ezekiel is woven all through the book of Revelation. Because God's doing the same kind of thing. He is a powerful God. He is a good God. And he is a dangerous God. That's the seven bowls. Now let me unpack, as we look at this, three significant surprises as we are studying this passage. The number, one, number first surprise is this, that the expression of God's wrath is both now and not yet and, and, and that, that God's wrath is both personal and yet creational. Let me explain what I mean by that. As I've been wrestling through studying this book this past year, I continue to wrestle with the question, and, and I'm more and more sure that this is the fact, that this phase of the book of Revelation, this division, does seem to feel more final more climactic even than the previous ones even though there is a secular nature to these things that we're looking at the same realities there's something about this final division that does seem more final and universal Although we know from this study that God, there is a perpetual judgment of God upon this rebellious creation. That's what we saw about the seven seals. There's, we're sensing the, tr- the seven trumpets of warning from God that there is a perpetual judgment going on. There does seem to be a final climactic kind of crescendo of all of this. And in light of this, I think that's why we have the only time Jesus actually says something here at verse uh 15 and chapter 16. I don't know if you notice, but through this entire section we called the war, Jesus hasn't said a word up until now. Notice what he says. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. This should be familiar language to you, especially if you've read the gospels. Jesus says, My coming is gonna be like a thief in the night especially as you're familiar with the book of Revelation, that constantly Jesus keeps telling the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, be alert, be awake, overcome, conquer, I'm coming. And he says the same thing here at the very end, the crescendo. The, the images of a soldier that's constantly ready for battle, a watchman who fights falling asleep but stays awake at their post. I think Christians of all ages and all places are supposed to read these words, what's happening, and ask themselves, am I expectant? Am I prepared? Am I awake to what God is doing in my time and place in this world, in my corner of the world? You see, friends, by Jesus saying this in verse 15, doesn't it tie back in all the messages to all the churches in chapters 2, 2, 3? Ephesus you've got some good works, you're getting after it, you're studying your theology, but you've lost your love. You've lost your love for this world that I'm trying to save. Sardis, you have a reputation of being alive. You're booming, you're growing, but I know you're you're asleep at the wheel. Thyatira, you guys are the opposite of Ephesus. You want to love everyone, and as a result, you're bringing everyone in, and you're not being discerning, and the strength of the church is crumbling. Laodicea, oh, you're physically rich and prosperous, but you're spiritually blind and naked. So, verse 15, friends, is a summons to the people of God. God will not allow the persecution and the oppression of his people to go on forever, but until then, stay awake, be vigilant. Because God needs us to be so because he's trying to save the world and his means of doing it is through the gospel and the way the gospel gets out is through Christians. So there is a finality to this but at the same time that would we call the not yet but there's a very nowness to what we've been reading. Now keep your finger in Revelation. Go with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 in particular. Romans chapter 1. Keep your finger in Revelation 16 and go to Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to what Paul writes. For the wrath of God, I want to make sure that you see that, because one of the things I want you to do is I want you to learn how to read the Bible yourselves. And you go, duh, I can read English. No, what I mean is read what's there. Right, what does Paul say in verse 18? For the wrath of God, what's the verb that comes right after that? Is. What tense is this verb? Is it future tense? Is it past tense? What tense? Present. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There is so much meat in that one verse, but the thing I want to draw your attention to is when when is the wrath of God revealed? Friends, right now. But wait a minute. Revelation, there's a final sense of it. Yes, the not yet, but there's a now happening as well, right? Now, keep your finger in Romans, keep your finger in Revelation, and then scoot over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, keep your finger in Romans, keep your finger in Revelation. Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going I'm to read it from verse 5. Paul is talking about what it means to be this new creation in Christ. Listen to what he says. Verse 5 of Colossians 3, "...put to death therefore what is earthly in you," and he lists what those things are, "...sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God..." what's that now in english we separated it but what is the tense there what's it say in your bibles the wrath of god is coming right in the greek it's one verbal it's one word the the, the greek is very inflected so they have the verbal tenses in their words is coming for from english what tense is that future tense uh, well, see, the Bible's incorrect. It's, easy. it's a present tense here and future tense. I don't mean to mock that, but what's going on? Well, this is it. The wrath of God is now, yet it's not yet it is happening right now in this creation and yet its final culmination is not yet friends let me say this our present experiences are testimonies to the foreshadowings of eschatological realities wow that sounded really smart eschatology just simply means the things of the future the things in the last times Our present realities are foreshadowings of of eschatological realities. In other words, the future is present now. Friends, in some sense, this, this is what we are. This is what the church is. We are a present reality of God's future eschatological realities. When people look at the church, they say, what in the world? There's this people. They're totally different than me. They live differently. They love differently. They they conduct themselves differently because we are an outpost, a signpost, an embassy to another kingdom that is breaking in. We're not where we should be, right? Amen to that. We're, we're, We're not where we should be, but we're not where we were. It is the now where the Spirit of God is changing us, but we are not yet perfected. But the present is giving testimony to the future of what God is doing the eschatological realities, and the same with the wrath of God. Now, I'm not saying that, I mean, in one sense, we are in those final times, right? Uh, Acts Acts chapter 2, verse 17, Peter says to the watching crowd, because the Holy Spirit fell and people were speaking in tongues, there's crazy things happening, and Peter says, this thing that you are now seeing is what's been prophesied by the prophet Joel, who said, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all humanity. And Peter says, we're living in that time. The author of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, In the past, God spoke to us through his prophets, but in these last days, he speaks to us through his Son. We are in those last times. I, I don't think the, the very final times that we've been, we're have giving some thought to here, but we are in those last times. So the wrath of God is expressed now and not yet. But also, um, God's wrath is expressed personally to us and even creationally. And what I mean by that is, as we've read here, God's wrath is even seen environmentally. Now, what do you mean by that? Look at, go back to Romans, hopefully you're still in Romans. Romans chapter 8, notice what Paul says. Romans chapter 8, verse 20, for the creation was subjected. So what Paul's talking about is kind of the gospel arc of of what has happened in in Adam, Adam failing against God, and the, the new Adam in Christ. Romans 8:20: for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know verse 22 that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now what's Paul saying that man? Even when we, when we fell into our sin, creation itself was subjected to futility. Creation itself is in a bondage to decay because of sin, because of what humanity has done. I've shared you uh, my theory on, on why animals always growl at us. It's because they knew we screwed it up. <laughs> they know. See, you guys, I didn't do it. The bears didn't do it. The birds didn't do it. You people did it. Ah. They know we're the ones that let them all down. What do I mean by that? Well, Genesis 3, what did God say? Because of you, cursed is the ground. In Deuteronomy 28, when we were ratifying the covenant with the Lord, the Lord said, if you are obedient, all these blessings will flow. Uh, Your crops will flourish. Agriculture will boom. But if you're disobedient, the land will not bear fruit, and you won't get your crops. Jesus said in the Gospels that there will be earthquakes and the moon will go dark. Friends, what I'm getting at is the Bible is very clear that sin has a consequence far greater than just our lives and the existential separation we have with each other and with God. Creation itself suffers. We were supposed to take care of it, and we subjected it to futility and a bondage of decay and God's wrath. We see it as it's pouring out. The creation itself is is just coming apart. there's a whole theology we could build on climate change and all that i'm I'm not going to get into that but my study of revelation has made me think differently i never really thought about it before but i guess i'm now more of a conservationist i'm not an environmentalist but i'm definitely a conservationist now side note let's move on (sighs) i recycle now um i might even get an ev right maybe okay um surprising thing number two these by the way i'm gonna go late i know it i'm halfway through my notes and it's already 10 o'clock i know i keep saying that but i'm just gonna go late give me time please okay these disasters that we're reading about in the seven bowls of god's wrath i want you to hear this are a consequence that are brought about by god himself go back to revelation i want to point this out in other words all this wrath that's coming out god's doing look at verse seven And one of the four living creatures, that should make you think back to chapters 4 and 5, the creatures around the throne of God, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls of wrath. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Look at verse 5 of of chapter 16 of Revelation. Revelation. And I heard the angel in charge of the water saying, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. Why is he just? Look at that conjunction right there. For, because you brought these judgments. Why did God bring those judgments? Look at verse 6. There's that other conjunction. Because, or for, they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and now you've given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. What, what's going on here friends do you remember this is what go back to revelation 6 revelation 6 the seven seals were being opened the seven seals saying this is the reality of this world now that's in battle against the lord and the fifth seal is opened. look at revelation 6 verse 9 he opened the fifth seal i saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of god and for their witness they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And chapter 16 gives us our answer. You, this, the world, I will, God's basically, I will not abide the world crushing my people underfoot. If you think I'm blind to what's happening, I am not. Another passage, Rome, uh, uh, Revelation chapter 8, Revelation chapter 8, the seals are still being opened, but I want to show this to you. Verse 3 of Revelation 8, And another angel came and stood at the altar, same altar, with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints that we just read about on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel, verse 5, then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it upon the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. God is bringing all this because this is what he plans to do. Now, I have had conversations with my non-Christian friends, and I, and I understand that when, when the topic of God's judgment comes up, particularly the book of Revelation, they say something along the lines of, well, this isn't the kind of God I want to worship. If this is what God is like, then I, I don't want to worship him. And, and and I understand what they're saying because we are reading some severe things. If you're paying attention, you're like, whoa. And if I have the relational equity with them, and, and usually I do, I say something that kind of along the lines of, well, what makes you think your opinion matters at all on this topic? Now, now I'm not trying to be cute, and I'm not telling you that's how you talk to people, right? I'm just saying, what I mean is that Look, I don't like getting sunburned, I'll say to my friends. I don't like getting sunburned. But if I stand out in the sun for too long without protection, I'm going to get burned. What you or I want is irrelevant to the reality that the sun burns. And this is important because we live in a culture that's all about our feelings and our preferences. And the reality is, what matters is, what is reality, not your preference about it. And our job, Christian or not, wisdom means bringing your understanding of reality or your preferences in alignment with reality. Does that make sense? Because the sun doesn't care what I think about it. It's just going to do what it does. And it's so important to know the difference between preferences and truth. Now, the reason my friends don't like what they read of Revelation is they have domesticated God. Now, that's very common for non-Christians or non-believers to do that because how could they? They don't read the Bible. They, They don't have a frame to understand him. The question I have for you, if you are a Christian, is have you done the same? Do you have a domesticated view of God? That he is good, and that's true, but are you being challenged by the fact that he's also dangerous? How do you feel that God is good, And He's dangerous. I don't mean dangerous like a murderer or a crooked politician or somebody like that. I mean dangerous like a a wonderful bull mastiff is dangerous. But he's also a lot of fun to play with. Right? That's what I love about big dogs. They're so good and loyal and they love to play rough. But they're dangerous. If you don't have an understanding that God is both good and dangerous, you're not going to understand most of what's going on in reality or what he says about himself in his word. And that's the same situation with my friends. More to the point, friends, if you look around this world and get at all angry at the evil and the injustice and the wrongness, when you read Revelation, you should actually like what you're reading. Because God is doing something about all those things. Now, to be clear, it should somber you. It should scare you. Like you from the Midwest who know what it's like to be in a good storm. It's scary, but it's also awesome. That's what's going on. Friend, if you ever look around this broken world and ask, when is God, why won't God do something about it? When is he going to do something about All, all the cruelty and the selfishness and the greed and the wrongs? The book of Revelation is your answer. The real question, though, is not if God's going to do something about it. The question that matters for you or I is what will happen to you when he does? Listen. Follow, follow what I'm saying here. Who of us here, whether you're a Christian or not, right? This is true of all of us. I mean, we all have the image of God in us. So who of us here has not cried out when they've seen wrongs done in this world? Evil, injustice, greed, whether it's a personal level or a national level. Who of us here has not cried out, when's God going to do something about this? Right, we've all have. But in your doing so, can I ask you a question? Have you ever given thought to the fact that in your very cries for this justice and change, you are not also calling down judgment on yourself, friends? If you, if you just read enough, his, if you read enough history, if you just listen to people long enough, if you just know your own heart enough, there's one thing you're going to know is really true. That in this world, there are no black and white winners and losers. Oppressed and oppressors. Victimizers, victims. Heroes, villains. Saints, sinners. I wish we lived in a world where it was black and white. But the reality is, we are all on that continuum. Every single one of us has been victimized. And we victimize others. We have been heroes and we have been villains. We've been the winner, we've been a loser. We've been wronged, and we wrong others. How quick we are to judge others, and quicker still to excuse the same kinds of things in ourselves. Right? That's why Jesus says, look, you may not have murdered, but if you've been angry at a brother or sister, and you've harbored that anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder. You may not have committed adultery, but if you've looked on a man or a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Now, I'm not saying we've all done the same thing. Obviously, that's not the case. But it's the same kind of thing. That's what Jesus is getting at. And you might say, well, wait, wait, you're saying, are you saying there's no difference between being angry and murdering or lusting and not committing adultery? No, there's a difference. But, but is it virtue that has prevented you from doing those things? Or are you just a coward and you don't want the consequences? So even in saying, I'm not that bad, you're just saying, I'm actually really a coward. I'm wicked and a coward. Some people are just wicked, right? See, Jesus doesn't play games. He gets to the heart of the matter. Man, you remember at our men's conference, right? I forget who said it. Was a Clay or Rob? The body follows the heart all the time. Here's the honest dilemma, and I'm going along, I know. Here's the honest dilemma, friends. If God doesn't do something about all the wrong in the world, how could we worship a God that is that uncaring? Right? Uh, so here's the, here's the dilemma we have to wrestle with. If God doesn't do something and enact his justice, how can we worship a God that is so uncaring like that? But if God does something about the wrong in the world, and if we're honest, our wrong too, then how can we worship a God that's going to be that severe? And, and depending upon how you look at this, God is like, he's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't, God is damned if he does anything about the evil because we say, well, he's just so mean, and he's damned if he does it because we say, oh, he's just so aloof and uncaring. We can't have it both ways. Do you want a God that's going to actually engage or not? It can't go both ways. And, And from another perspective, if we reject God for who he says he is, then the reality is you're doomed to a world without answers for all the evil in it. But if you're gonna allow God to be who he is, you're doomed to face a justice you can't bear. You get what I'm saying here? This is a real dilemma we all have to wrestle with. Because if the Bible is right, and God exists, what are we supposed to do? Because we have a God that needs to be reckoned with. And if the Bible is wrong, and God doesn't exist, well, what are we supposed to do? Because then there's evil in this world, and we have no way to reckon with it. But you see, the Bible, is right, and there is a way to reckon with this God. We'll get to that in a minute. But if the Bible is wrong, we have no way to reckon with all the evil and injustice in this world. As a matter of fact, can I say this? If the Bible is wrong, you are hard-pressed to even actually say what evil is. Because without an absolute standard of what righteousness is, you don't know what wickedness is. If there is no absolute good, you have nothing com- to compare to say, this then is evil. In other words, if you don't have a concept of straight, you don't have a concept of crooked. And so we have a real dilemma if we're going to be honest with what the Bible is teaching here. Okay. That's a, the that's a third surprising statement here. And we are going to go late. You see it here in the scripture twice, this almost unbelievable statement. You see it in chapter 16, verse 9 and 11, twice it says, and they did not repent. They did not repent. I've mentioned some of my friends who double down in their opposition to God because of what they know or read of in Revelation, but I've also shared with you in past sermons two of my friends, Frank and David, who read the book of Revelation and, and that was the catalyst by which God used to regenerate them and give them new life. They said, I don't want this. I don't want to be on the other end of this. The sun that melts the wax can also harden the clay. Often, friends, God's judgment and justice serves a dual purpose, right? It, it draws some people to repentance and yet at the same time hardens other hearts. The cross does the same. Some people look to that and they see a savior. Others look to it and they see a failure. Friend, as you read the Bible, if you're hearing this, are are you hearing in the wrath of God some out-of-control deity flying off the handle like some drunken father? Or do you see a just avenger who will not abide evil and will confront it triumphantly? Why does humanity not repent? What, is, what explains this? If they're seeing this, experiencing, what explains this? Back to the text of Revelation 13. There, there's this like mini interlude in verse 13 to 14. Let me read it to you. And John says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, here we're introduced to the unholy trinity again, out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, again, you should be thinking Exodus, right? That was part of the plague. Verse 14, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. skip down to verse 16. And they assembled them at the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. And so we see these frogs coming out. of this. frogs were always an unclean animal. And, and they're just croaking one message, and that is let's, let's fight, up, fight against God. Come on, let's all gather against God. Now, I know Armageddon's a big thing, you want me to unpack that, and, and, and I'm just going to say this, number one, uh Megiddo, where we get Armageddon from, Mount Megiddo, Mount Megiddo does not exist, there's a plain of Megiddo, uh, a valley of Megiddo, uh, my wife and I have a, a pit, we're on that valley, there's a large plain next to it that was the site of many historical battles biblically, Barak and uh, Sisak fought there, King Josiah and Pharaoh Necho fought there. As a matter of fact, Napoleon beat the Turks there in 1799. General Allenby in World War I fought the Turks there again in 1917. It's a, a well-known battleground. It's synonymous to saying something like Fallujah or Saigon or Hacksaw Ridge or the Alamo or Gettysburg. They would inc- Images of a massive battle would have been brought to mind, but what John is doing, he's kind of like delocalizing it by calling it the Mountain of Megiddo compared to the Mount Sinai or Mount Zion. So he's pulling on their historical knowledge, but almost symbolizing it to just say, there's going to be a showdown here of monumental proportions. And the reality is, as I've been teaching you, revelation as a metaphor for the reality of the spiritual war that is going on behind the physical history of our lives, understood that way, this answers a big question from Psalm chapter 2. Here it is. Oops. Oops. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Friends, why do kings and nations and societies and people always put themselves against God in every age, in every generation? We find kings and rulers and people fighting against the beautiful King Jesus. Whether it was ancient Rome that, that the, our brothers and sisters here had to contend with, or modern North Korea, or the atrocities of Pol Pot, or the caliphate in the Middle East, or Hitler, or Stalin, or the 21st century secular dream, why do people always gang up against the King Jesus? Because he would expect the opposite. And he brings shalom, and peace, and love, and justice. And here's the answer. Because in every age, there are demonic spirits and they're croaking to bring humanity against God. Whether it's Richard Dawkins or the modern new atheist of Hitchens, whether it's ISIS, whether it's institutions like Wall Street or Hollywood or Mohammed or Karl Marx, there's always these unclean spirits whispering, gang up against the king. You're the king. That's what we see here happening. See, revelation, friends, as I've said, is not pointing us to a single, seminal event in some future time, but rather revealing the spiritual reality, the spiritual battle that's going on through all time. And friends, there will no doubt be a climax. We're getting to that very soon. But as a general rule, all this is written so that verse 15 makes sense to us. Are you expectant? Are you awake? Are you vigilant? Church, because we are being assembled for battle all the time. Are you asleep? Have you lost your first love? Are you physically rich, but spiritually poor? This is the message. We need to end, obviously, but not before addressing the statement I made earlier that if the Bible is true, is there a way to reckon with this God who reckons with all forms of evil, including our evil? And there is. And the answer, I think, here is in chapter 16, verse 17. Notice... The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, it is done. Well, immediately what it's referring to is chapter 15 and verse 1. John writes, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. See, God's wrath has been poured out on all those who oppress his people, on all those who reject his sovereign, righteous reign, and those who rejected him and those who have killed him. say, what are you talking about? You see, God came to make things right, to judge Satan and bring peace to humanity, and humanity rejected his offer and killed him. But even in our vilest actions, putting God on a cross, God accomplishes his plan. Someone had to pay the price of evil. Someone had to suffer the very wrath we read about if others are to be spared that wrath. Someone had to pay the crimes of humanity if humanity was going to be somehow declared innocent of the crime. That's exactly why Jesus came. That's exactly why, by the way, when he hung on the cross, John 19 30 says, Jesus proclaimed with a loud voice, it is finished. The same loud voice in Revelation 16:17. One cry from the throne, one cry from the cross, both from God Himself. One was a cry of mercy. Because Jesus had secured our salvation, one is a cry of justice because God's wrath has been poured out on all the injustice and evil in the world. The question is will we respond to the cry of mercy from the cross or the cry of judgment from the throne? Will God's wrath melt the wax or harden the heart, harden the clay of your heart? I pray that it melts the heart. And you come to receive the mercy of Christ. Because you don't want God's justice. You don't. You want God's mercy. And that's there in abundance at the cross. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you and, man, this is just, there's so much more. But, Lord, we, Lord, prevent us from triumphalism. Help us to see this with somber awe. And help us to realize... It is our sin, my sin, the sins of the people in this room, that the wrath of God has come out. But because of the love of Christ, our wrath was taken on the cross. And this wrath is to be vetted on those who have oppressed your people, rejected your people. Lord, even though it is an answer to our own prayers, how long, O Lord, will you avenge us? We do not rejoice and we ask for your mercy. That you would save people, open their eyes, give them the, the gift of regeneration, new spiritual life, and would you use us for that very purpose? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I know we're we're late, but thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community visit us at www.ccclh.org.